90.7. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Ben Flanagan. Later in the show, we'll be discussing the new film from director Mark Robinette, Never Let Me Go. And in the spirit of the weekend, we'll be discussing the state of the horror genre today. But first, we'll return to the topic of Facebook and discussing the new film Catfish. And to do so, we'll be joined by our friend Matt Scalici at FilmNerds.com. Matt, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, guys. How are you we're, we're good. Well, we're glad to have you on to uh, discuss this film. Now, uh, it's just worked out this way from one way or another, I think, Ben. But uh, the most likely reason being that we just don't get a lot of first-run documentaries around here. But I think this is the first time we've dedicated a review on our show to a documentary film. And I think Catfish is probably a really good place to start. It's a new film from directors Henry Juist and Ariel Schulman. And I think it's a good place to start because of the questions surrounding the film's validity, which I, I suppose we'll talk about. It's kind of hard not to. Now, you, our listeners be warned, our, our discussion is probably going to get into some spoiler territory. It's kind of hard not to with this film in particular. To talk about it without at least revealing broadly what's going on. But let me describe the film in, in sort of broad terms to begin. Uh, the two filmmakers decide to document the burgeoning online relationship between Ariel's brother Neve and a Michigan family, including an eight-year-old painter prodigy with a fondness for Neve's photography, and her older sister, with whom Neve starts a long-distance romantic relationship. Uh, but, st- but things soon get strange as details about the lives of the family begin not to add up. Uh, leading to the two filmmakers and their subject traveling to Michigan to meet this family face-to-face. Now, what the film reveals will shock you, or at least it shocked me personally. Uh, while you may have an idea of where Catfish is ultimately going, the details add up to one, for me, pretty engrossing emotional experience. But again, a lot of questions have been raised about the sort of convenience of all of this being documented. So let's start there. And I'll throw the first question to you, Matt. Does this potential controversy affect your viewing of this film in any way? Well, it doesn't affect my enjoyment of the experience of the film. Um, and I think it's a shame that it's become, I mean, I say it's a shame. It's certainly, I think, the intention of the filmmakers for this to be a topic of discussion because it helps bring uh, attention to the film by creating this controversy. But I think it's a shame that this is the most discussed aspect of the film because it is a really in 
in baseball mentality to film and filmmakers these days where you're sort of guilty until proven innocent. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think that the release of I'm Still Here, Casey Affleck's film, uh, sort of at the same time this movie has raised a lot of questions about Catfish and whether or not it's a hoax. And we're American audiences, or audiences in general, I should say, we're very hard to fool at this point. We're always thinking that something is fake, and that's a shame. And I think that whether or not that's true for this movie, uh, I hope that it's real, but whether or not that's true, this movie still has probably would have the same effect on me no matter what, because I think the message is so strong here, and the themes that it is exploring, um, they're so disturbing and real that no matter if it's fake or if this is, these are real people that we are discovering and meeting and learning very specific and intimate details about, um, it, it's really going to hit you hard. And I think for us especially, we're products of the Facebook generation, and people are calling this the other Facebook movie, and I think that's definitely appropriate. And whereas in the social network we learn about the origin of Facebook and don't really get to see its effect, on the world and on the 500 million people that have become a part of it, I think Catfish definitely serves that up on a silver platter. And it's um, not really something that raises any suspicions we had about the Internet and people who use the Internet, what they're up to. Uh, we've known about this since, you know, AOL Instant Messenger was out there and people were disguising themselves via screen names and in chat rooms and things like that. There have always been predators on the internet. But what this movie does, I think, explores those people more so than we've seen anywhere else. And we get it in one case in particular where we learn so many things about a person out there who assumes multiple identities. And we learn about these motivations um, behind why they do it and why they choose to do that. And the fact that they're choosing to cope with their lives, their lives a certain way. That in this case, they're using Facebook to do that. And to me, it, it's haunting, um, but it's necessary that we know this. And I really think that catfish, I'm going to go ahead and say I think it's real because there are just certain behaviors and instances from certain people that can't be faked to me. There might be, like Matt said, some conveniences where you know, the filmmakers put themselves in a position to answer certain questions, and yet you edit it a certain way. You've got to make the movie. I mean, you've got to tell the story you're going to tell. But, I mean, Corey, answer your own question. I mean, is this going to affect how you watch this and how you um, experience it, whether it's real or not? Not at all, though I do agree with you. That I, I think that it's probably 90% genuine. I, I think the other 10% might have been uh, some perhaps exaggeration on the filmmaker's part about when they came to the conclusions that they come to you uh, as far as the discovery process. You know, I, I honestly believe that the catfish might be the result of these guys heading out to Michigan intending to do some sort of comical expose or make fun of whoever's perpetrating this, this fraud. And when they get out there, they realize that's considerably harder to do. Uh, because it does, like you said, expose the humanity of the sort of person who would do this and is you know, surprisingly touching. But I think that that effect would come across either way. This could be a fictionalized film and it would have the same effect. Um, that being said, I think it does gain a lot uh, you know, from being a documentary and from being the sort of, uh, like you said, comment on the face. 
Facebook generation and it's sort of a companion piece to the social network in a lot of ways. Um, and it works very, very well, fiction or not. Matt, you and your wife, Francesca, have started a new podcast. It's really great. It's called Cinematrimony, where you two watch a movie and as soon as possible after you've seen it, you have a conversation and you record that and you've done one on the social network and now you've done one on Catfish and to me they're both outstanding listens. I can't wait to uh, listen to future uh, recordings but the parts of your conversation that I find extremely fascinating is when y'all start talking about Facebook itself and why people do this. Um, once we learn what happens here, once this film takes that left left turn, very sharp left turn, did it make you start to think, okay, I, maybe I shouldn't be, but maybe I shouldn't be living through Facebook as much as I am. Maybe I should really start looking into the friends that I have, these virtual and tangible friends that I have, and start rethinking who I've ex- whose requests I've accepted. Did you go into your friend archive, I guess, and start deleting anybody? Thank you. 
causes emotional damage that Neve takes on from... Yeah, and you have the, the scene, then the, the real, like, twist of the scene. And I think, I think there's a point in the movie where you know what's coming, even though they haven't fully told you yet. And the scene where Neve is reading off his text message exchange is sort of dirty text message exchange that mm-hmm. had with uh, Megan so far. Uh, at that point, I think most of us probably have figured out what's up. And we, and it's just so cringeworthy because you go, oh my gosh, you know, think of who he's been sending, you know, he's been sending these text messages to, you know, and that, that's to me, that's the most disturbing part of the movie. Yeah, Corey, and that's when I really started feeling bad for this person and having a lot of sympathy. I think the tragic figure in this whole thing is Neve. It really is, because this is somebody who has invested himself emotionally, intimately, romantically, in some cases, with this family and this older girl, Megan, that he's been talking to on the phone with and G-chatting, that kind of thing. And, again, we said this was going to be a spoiler show, so let's start spoiling. Um, By the time he figures out or it just hits him at one point that there is no Megan, you know. Um, it, it, you can just kind of see this shield, this emotional shield that he's putting up. He's trying to laugh it off, but he's obviously damaged by this immediately. And by the end of the movie, he's not as interested in talking on camera as he might have been before. I totally feel bad for him. And I think, wow, I mean, Facebook, it really can do this to somebody. I mean, obviously it was his choice to talk to this person and get... Um, involved with this family and have this relationship, which a lot of people might think is unusual in the first place. I think that, obviously, it dawned because of a shared love of art, and that's understandable. Um, but as far as he went into it, that was a choice that he made, and he was going to get burned. Uh, there was potential for that to happen. But Facebook-wise, if I get a friend request, the first thing I check, if I don't know the person intimately or I didn't meet them the night before, I check my mutual friends right away. And if we don't have any mutual friends or we have, like, one and it's an obscure person, I'm ignoring that request. I usually do the same thing. Um, you know, Neve needs seen, like you said, where he puts up the shield and, 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 you know, viewers can sort of see it rise and see, you know, see him. You know, you'll immediately know what's going on. That's tremendously affecting. Uh, and, I, and I think the film speaks to this, this sort of larger concern about you know, Angela is a sympathetic character in the end, I think. She's, she's tremendously sympathetic. And the, the movie's emotional power comes from, uh, you know, this sympathy that, that the viewer develops uh, from her. Um, but one of the things that, uh, that the film, I think, what its larger concerns is uh, this sort of idea of using Facebook for, I guess, emotional fulfillment that you wouldn't get anywhere else and how damaging that can be to other people. You know, Facebook ultimately is a community like you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the social network intended it to be. Each member does affect the other. And so living out this uh, sort of insular fantasy life is not, in fact, insular. You know? and, and this woman, inadvertently, I think, really does some, some emotional damage to Neve. This is taking Sims or Second Life to an entirely new right. level. Exactly. And and, and so, uh, Catfish is, the, is in a way a cautionary tale, I suppose you could say. But, I mean, the emotional power that the movie gets from me is entirely based on, you know, who this person is when we meet her in the 
very, very upsetting to me. It was, it was just a, you know, the last 20 minutes of the movie are, are, so, are so great because of that. Yeah, and Matt, I don't know how you feel. I think some people might refer to Angela as a villain in this movie, and I think that to an extent that's fair. But once we start to learn why she's doing what she's doing, why she's created what they say, like 15 different Facebook profiles, and it's basically built this community of people to maintain this relationship, and there may be other relationships that we don't know about that don't involve Neve. Um, once we learn why she's doing what she's doing, did you, Matt, have sympathy for her? Well, I think they had to work hard to create sympathy for her uh, as filmmakers, and I think they did a really good job. And look, that's to their credit, by the way, because uh, say what you want about what's, what's real and what's not in the movie. I think it's pretty clear that Angela is real. You know, whatever else happens in the movie that they staged for effectiveness, Angela is, I, I'm pretty sure Angela's real, and what she did, she did. And, you know, it's weird. It's off-putting. It's creepy. And, you know, there are moments in the movie where the, where the you know, the leads are, the filmmakers are scared. I mean, they're nervous because they don't, they don't know that, you know, they're thinking, if this woman's willing to go this far, uh, you know, there must be something wrong with her. And I think it is, it, it, it's when they let you into her life off of Facebook that you start to feel sympathy for her and you start to say, well, who knows what any of us would be driven to if they were in her situation. I mean, she's, uh, she's in what's pretty clearly an unhappy home situation. It's at least very difficult. I mean, she's, she's, a, uh, she's clearly a very charitable woman and she's, you know, she's had a lot asked of her and she seems to be, um, you know, doing it sort of dutifully, I guess, taking care of, uh, you know, kind of a, a working class husband and, and his two disabled sons. And, but it's obviously very difficult for her, and she obviously had aspirations, and it's none of it's worked out for her. So I think from that perspective, she's a, she's a tragic character. You know, obviously she, she's got a lot of disappointment in her life, and that's what's led her to do this, this very... Uh, you know, disturbing activity, but it is weird, and I I feel nervous for them every minute that they are with her in Michigan. Even even though she isn't a dangerous person, you can't help but feel nervous because she's obviously, um, you know, she's she's a she's a pathological liar. She's you can see it in those last few scenes. You know, she's. Uh, you know, she, she makes, she, even, even as they confront her and sort of force her to finally give them the truth, she still keeps looking for ways out. She still is looking for lies that uh, we don't really uncover until after they've already left her. Yeah, and I mean, right when they first meet her on her doorstep, the first thing she does, I guess in a panic, is lie to them and say that she's starting chemotherapy, which we learn isn't true, and it's just, you ask, why, why did you do that? Why, Like you said, she is a pathological liar, and as we conclude here, one thing that I think makes this so emotionally effective and acceptable, and why we find her hurt also to be a tragic figure and a humane character, it's all because of Neve and how he approaches her and how he confronts her. You have to give him credit for having what is obviously thick skin 
enough to come to this person and not ambush her, just outright ambush her, because he could have done that, and the filmmakers could have done that too. They could have said it right when they saw them. But he does it in a very subtle and a much easier way than a lot of people might do. Obviously, it's because he has been hurt by this, and he wants to sort of chip away at the core without just diving right into it. But I think that he showed a lot of strength and a lot of respect when he didn't even have to. And I think that helped make a good movie. I really do. Yeah, and my wife, Francesca, on our podcast pointed out, you know, that it's really kind of, that's the most remarkable thing about this movie in a way, is that in today's, in today's documentary filmmaking world where it's, the heroes are, you know, Michael Moore and, and um, you know, really you can sort of look at Sasha Baron Cohen too as a little bit of a documentary in, in two movies. But, um, you know, what's in is confrontation and uh, getting people catching people at their worst and forcing them into uncomfortable situations so that they behave poorly. And these guys had an opportunity to do that, and they chose not to. They chose to treat her humanely and, and, uh, and sympathetically. And, you know, really, they, they had every reason in the world to be angry with her and upset with her and, and put off, and they chose not to be. And that's, that's pretty unique in terms of, you know, documentary filmmaking. I mean, if these, if these guys were only out for attention, you know, uh, they, they certainly, there would have been easier ways to, to get it in a hurry uh, than by sort of approaching her calmly and, and respectfully. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, they, they did care about her as a person and they didn't want to be bad guys. You know, they, they wanted to make a good movie, but they didn't want to be bad guys. Well, this is a film that I saw yesterday I'm still thinking about and I think I will continue to think about as the year goes on. It's, it, it's already uh, very high on my list for 2010, and I don't know if it's going to move. Catfish is now playing in limited release at the Lee Branch Rave Theater in Birmingham. We will take a short break coming up. Uh, friend of the show and horror geek and a half, Phil Odin, will join us here in the studio to give you some Halloween picks, way more than you'll know what to do with Matt. I mean... You're welcome to stick around if you want to uh, to talk horror movies. Do you want to stick around? Yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear about all the uh, the movies that none of us will have heard of that that Phil's going to be promoting. Because I I have a feeling that Phil has like an entire separate, you know, like an underground Netflix that he knows about that most people <laughs> you know, don't have access to or something. Well, we know that it's going to be sad no matter what, so stick around and have that ready. Our guest is Mescalici and Philo and is about to join us. We're back here on Aspect Radio with Corey Kraftlein, Ben Flanagan. Mescalici is on the phone with us. He just talked about catfish, and he's going to stick around for our horror discussion now. We're joined now in the studio by Phil Owen, former managing editor, assistant entertainment editor, and lowly volunteer entertainment critic at the Crimson White, our fair University of Alabama campus newspaper. Phil, welcome to the show. Howdy. Howdy. We're glad to have you back here. Can you remember the last time we had you in the studio? The last time you were on, you, you were on the phone. You were out in Los Angeles. We had a little 3D discussion. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember that. It's good times, honestly, given that it's now a day before Halloween. We felt it necessary to bring in what we might consider to be somewhat of a horror specialist to give our listeners a heads up on the absolute best and scariest of a genre that really carries way more than it can and should handle at times. And to put it delicately, there's a lot of crap out there, is there not? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yet you and Corey sometimes proudly cling to the crap and hail it as precious. 
fascist garbage that somehow makes the movie world go round. I assume you're talking about things you haven't seen. Well, I've seen some of them, and you praised them. So, look, we'll get into it here. Our listeners, they should visit Matt's website, filmnerds.com, and its blog, where there's a post right now. It's called Film Nerds Recommends Halloween Edition. You can go to filmnerds.com slash blog, where Corey and I have made contributions. Matt has two, and on it, Matt divided our recommendations into four categories. Gory fun, classic horror, meaning pre-1980, monster movies, modern classics, and that, that rounds it out, and that means in films within the last ten years, sort of contemporary classics. So we're going to run with that format, too. Phil, you are our special guest expert here. So let's start with you. Out of the gory fun category, what are your go-to splatter flicks? Well, just uh, keeping on the, the theme of the, the week, which is Saw 3D, I'm going to say 3D horror. Um, 3D R-rated horror, rather. Um, obviously, some, some a non-R-rated horror movie isn't going to be that gory. But anyway, no, Saw, you know, in, in Saw 3D, uh, a, a person's head gets crushed. And all and, and, and her skull pieces fly at you. And that was a really uh, seminal moment in movie history for me. <laughs> so, so let's talk about that and why you like that so much. I mean, you, we might look at this as more of an intervention than a movie discussion. Uh, so explain yourself. I mean, did you really like Saw 3D? I saw your Facebook status yesterday or tweet that said, Saw 3D is amazing in all caps. Yeah, so explain it, man. What's so good about it? It's just, <laughs> the thing about, you know, the, the, the Saw movies is that they are intended to make you want to throw up. And there are a few occasions in, in the franchise that, that made me feel that way. You know, like, most vividly, you know, we watched, Corey and I watched all, all seven of them this week. Oh, my God. Ridiculous. 
sure you have more gory fun picks here, Phil, but let's kind of go around the table. Corey, I mean, what's your, your first gory fun movie? Well, as I mentioned on the Film Nerds website, gory fun for me, uh, it doesn't get any gorier than Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, which is perhaps the goriest movie ever made, just by sheer volume of fake blood. Um, I, I'd also throw in the Evil Dead movies in this category, particularly Evil Dead 2, which I would is, is almost as gory as Dead Alive and, and probably more fun. My entry was The Fly, Cronenberg's movie, where you have one of the most amazing arm breaks on screen in, in the history of arm breaks, and you also have several instances of The Fly's sort of acid puke melting people's flesh and things like that, and it's pretty amazing and disturbing, and I remember seeing it when I was way too young, and it still has that horrible stamp. I'll make a quick shout-out to Robert Rodriguez and some of the gore that he threw into, say, like, From Dust Till Dawn and some in Planet Terror. That was at least kind of fun. I mean, it, it wasn't your... They're better movies than the Saw movies, I'll say that much. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Planet Terror is fun. I mean, for that grindhouse experience, I would say that it sort of hit the nail on the head a little better than Death Proof, anyway. And it's just ridiculous. I, I disagree. Well, I don't know. I think one guy actually made the Grindhouse movie, and the other, I don't know, fell asleep at the camera or the wheel. Matt, you're the only fun today. On the blog, I went with uh, Day of the Dead because it's an actually good movie that also is really gory. I, I, it's mostly for, the, for the, the best gory effect I've ever seen, which is a scene where the zombies are, are tearing a guy apart, and they actually take his head off, and the head keeps screaming as they're taking it off. And uh, I thought, watching it, I thought the head was the, was the, real, was the, was the real actor. And you don't realize until the head not attached anything that it's not the real actor. It's a good shot. It's a good reveal. But I also, I want to uh, throw in the, the, probably the goriest thing, because I don't go see movies like Bill and Corey, like, you know, the, the movies they've been talking about. You mean with so, Reckless Abandon? Right. And I'm just saying it to offend 
always feel were in classic horror now pre-1980? Is there just like a go-to and all be all movie that you refer to? Uh, Night of the Living Dead. Why? Uh, well, yeah. it's the, it's really the, the one zombie movie that scares me. Just everything about it. I mean, it's just a genuinely, it's a slow-burning, unsettling, really just moody and creepy movie. And it's in black and white, and, you know, it, it's, it's just got the whole package, and it's gory. It is a good pick. I like that. It was on TV the other night. I, I like watching it. I like watching it on really bad transfers to to me. That makes it even it makes it even creepier. Yeah, you know? yeah. my wife's favorite. So. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Corey, your classic pick uh, on the block. I picked the Dario Argento's Suspiria. I want to throw out a pretty obvious pick. I think John Carpenter's Halloween. Still, for my money, the best slasher movie ever made. Definitely. My pick on there was a little unconventional, I guess, but it scares me. It's 2001 A Space Odyssey from 68. I just think, I really do think that there are legitimately horrific moments in that where I felt more uneasy than I have during a lot of great horror movies. So, Matt, your classic pick.
dialogue in a really fantastic setting in uh, Antarctica. Highly recommended. Matt, your monster pick. Stuff. 
And I think that he really elevates that in the feature film format with Mulholland Drive. There's just some terrifying imagery and just some unsettling moments that uh, really I still think about whenever that, that title is mentioned. So, Matt, your contemporary modern classic. Yeah, maybe. 
so many options that you miss the good stuff. But generally, I think you know the horror genre is in a pretty all right place right now. I just think that the genre has been put in place for so long that you have this template that you can work from and make a pretty effective horror movie without really even trying. You know what I mean? And then you have these contemporary films like The Crazies or The Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which I watched the other night, and they're just not, they just don't really do anything at all. They, they, they try to follow somewhat of a blueprint, I guess, but I don't know what it is that's missing other than actual scares and laughs, because, I mean, horror is also a genre that's built on humor, too, and a lot of these movies are humorless for me. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's the problem. You know, you watch the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, and it's just so intense the entire time. Corey and I, we uh, rented it to watch it a couple of weeks ago, and I was just like, come on, everybody, just chill out, so I make a joke. Yeah, Freddy, make a joke, Freddy. You're funny in the other movies. You really are. Robert England goes funny. on about killing someone. Yeah, it was, it was, the whole, the whole experience was just oppressive and not really enjoyable just because it was just so, the tone was just too, too dark on
that I could watch and just, you know, get, get into the Halloween spirit with. And I saw that the remake of The Omen was there. And I was just like, why not? You know, I'll try it out. I actually haven't seen the first one, and I should see that first. But then I thought, yeah, I'll just get it just, just to watch it, just to watch another horror movie. And I was really thankful when all they had was the full screen edition because that didn't let me rent it. You know, I won't watch full screen DVDs. And I was just like, oh, thank God. You know what I mean? Like somebody has intervened here and sat the full screen edition on the shelf. But I think that the best example of something that is very basic, has a very, you know, very basic concept and follows a lot of the traditional rules of horror and humor that we've talked about is Drag Me to Hell from last year. I mean, obviously, Sam Raimi is a once-in-a-generation talent when it comes to horror and telling these scary stories through, in some cases, screwball comedy, and Dragging Me to Hell is a great example of that. But I just, I loved it because it was just kind of a, you just kind of saw a guy, a master at work, doing what he does best, scaring us with what would easily be considered easy scares, I guess, you know, things popping out at you when you when you least expect it or when you do expect it. I mean, there are times in that movie where I expected it and I still got scared. He just has control. And I just don't think that that's that hard, honestly, to just sort of catch the audience off guard with something. Do you? Well, you know, I don't, I don't think it's that hard to write a coherent sentence either. Yeah, a lot of people have a problem with that. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I mean, no, I, I get your point, though. It's just, it, it seems like it should be easier, but you know, we have a lot of stupid people out there who think they can make a horror movie or, or who is somebody's nephew or something and, and you know, they, they get the money. They get the millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Christopher from The Sopranos, the thing is, it's like everybody who's an idiot that wants to make a movie makes a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. I guess, uh, but let's, let's take one last break. Matt and Phil, please stick around with us while we give some DVD picks here in the next couple of minutes. We will be right back. And Corey is actually going to give us his take on Mark Romanek's latest film, Never Let Me Go, which just left Birmingham, unfortunately. So stick around. 9.7. We're back here on Aspect Radio. So, Corey, you saw another new release this week, Mark Romanek's latest drama, Never Let Me Go, starring Kira Knightley, Kerry Mulligan, and Andrew Garfield. Of course, based on the Kazuo Ishiguro novel of the same name. Now, I have what many would consider a stupid rule about films adapted from books. Once I know that there is a film adaptation out there of something that I haven't yet read, I refuse to read the book before I see the movie. I don't want to let the book influence my expectations for the film and slant my opinion going into it. I just think that happens all the time. I will choose to read the book afterwards because I don't think seeing the film really influences how I read the book, because the book came first, I know that, so anyway, we won't really get into that. You certainly do not abide by this rule, in fact, you told me recently that you read Ishiguro's book in the span of a night or a couple hours, yeah, it was like that. So I ask you, will reading this book, which you love, you told me that you love, will it only raise my expectations for Mark Romanek's film, or will the film dash those hopes? It will raise your expectations for the film in a big way, and I will say that, you know, leaving the theater, I didn't want to be that guy who said that the book was better than the movie, but the book is better than the movie. That being said, I think the movie is outstanding, and it's a, it's a careful, it's a very well-considered adaptation that nevertheless loses uh, as film adaptations must a significant amount of detail from the novel, uh, a lot of which, you know, David, devotees of the book might find necessary and might be missing while they're watching the, the film. So I think maybe your rule in this particular instance is not a bad one to have. You know, you might 
might want to see this film, which I think is, is a great piece of work on its own terms before you read what I think is a very, very exceptional novel. But man, this is this is quite the film. It really is. To, to sort of talk about it briefly and broadly, because I think part of the power from this film sort of comes in from discovery, though perhaps not as, as vaguely as the marketing for the film has, has been. The, the film tells the story of, of three young people played once they reached teenage by here nightly Terry Mulligan and Andrew Garfield, as you said, who were raised in this very insular boarding house in, in rural England, completely isolated and separated from the rest of the world. Now, viewers of the film will discover that they were raised this way and have been separated from the rest of the world for a very specific purpose. And the film becomes this sort of tragic love story along the lines of Remains of the Day, if Remains of the Day met Blade Runner, it raises a lot of the same existential questions as, as Ridley Scott's very, very popular science fiction film from the 80s, and I think it does so just as effectively. Let's talk about the performances a little bit, because we've just recently seen Andrew Garfield in The Social Network, and I've heard a lot of different people say that this movie is a real testament to his range, based on what we saw in The Social Network, because in that, he plays this smart Harvard kid, you know, who's good at math and fairly, uh, fairly business savvy, I will say, without ruining anything about that movie. But in this, I hear he plays a bit of a simpleton. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And he's, he's exceptional. Again, yeah, this is definitely a testament to, to his range. He's very, very good. It's hard for me, I guess, to sort of, I guess, evaluate his performance based off of his other performance in The Social Network, but they're, they're both equally pretty terrific. Kira Knightley is very effective in, in a somewhat smaller role, and Carrie Mulligan, once again, pretty much hoists this film up on her shoulders and, and carries it much like she did with an education. Not that this, not that either of those are weak films on their own, but she is such an exceptional actress. I've, I've pretty much reached the point where I'll, I guess I'll see her in anything. She's a, she's a first-day sort of actress for me where I will, I will make a trip from now on. I don't know how you feel about one-hour photo, but I'm guessing that you're liking what you're seeing from Mark Romanek as a feature filmmaker. Yeah, Mark, one-hour photo is good. Is this an improvement? This this is an improvement, if only because one-hour photo sort of has the, the sort of affectations that you would expect from a first-time like, music video director. That, that's the work of a music video guy. This is the work of somebody who is a lot more restrained and a lot more considered in his filmmaking. It's beautifully shot by uh, Adam Kimmel. I think he is also the cinematographer who did which was also a really good-looking movie. And it, I mean, it's very deliberately paced, but I think the cumulative effect is, is this really tragic story, this really emotional thing that builds to the last 20 minutes to just this absolutely terribly sad moment. I mean, it, it really, I mean, it's, I'm not going to lie and say that this is going to be like a, a jaunty trip to the movies or anything that, that people are really going to you know, have a good time with on a Friday night, but as far as it's emotional filmmaking, this is one of 2010's finest examples. Well, Never Let Me Go was playing at the Ray Theater in Vestavia. Corey saw it just in time. It's now left, unfortunately. It's in limited release across the country. I think it's opening at the Capri Theater in a few weeks for listeners who may be in the Montgomery area. I want to say November 11th. I don't know off the top of my head if that's correct, but I think it's opening there. I really recommend this film. And uh, if you're in the Montgomery area, it could be worse. Well, time now for some DVD picks, and Phil and Matt are still with us right now, and we'll throw it to you first. Phil, anything at home right now or on the queue that you plan on watching that you might not have seen or something you just want to recommend? Oh, man. 
check that out. How's Fable 3? Fable 3 is is hilarious, but slight. Okay. So it's a lot of fun to play. It's a lot of fun to play, but it's kind of a, I would say it, it's almost a forgettable experience. Well, we'll definitely check it out on filefront.com. Filefront.com. And Matt, like we said, we can find you on filmnerds.com. Any more plugs for you? I'm sure we'll have some podcasting in the week to come for uh, 1983 stuff. We're working on another that Film Nerds recommends blogs, but Graham, right now, Graham's idea is to talk about the first time we saw boobies in movies. I'm going to get that idea, so we'll work on it. Uh, we shall see. I think mine might have been marked for death with Steven Seagal. I don't know. It wasn't his movies, though. But thank God. We can also hear Cinematrimony. I want to recommend that, too. I, again, I've listened to the first couple of episodes. You can find that on the Film Nerds Facebook fan page, I know. But really, it is it is an outstanding thing, Matt. I hope you and Francesca continue to do that because it, it, it's they've both been great listens so far. So Appreciate keep it up. But again, Matt, thank you. Phil, thank you. Please come back again in the very near future. Until next week, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey. Craft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. I thought I told you never to interrupt me while I'm working. Ninety-five seven.